Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Aladdin. This episode was originally recorded Sunday, 6th of July, 2014. Robin Williams would be alive for one more month. Three years ago, we took you on a magical journey under the sea. Two years ago, mice. You didn't like them. Last year, we took you to a place where a beautiful girl looked into the heart of a beast and found the man of her dreams. Now, come with us and enter a whole new world beyond your imagination, where a boy discovers a magic lamp and a genie who can make all his dreams come true. Walt Disney Pictures presents Aladdin. You're a genie? That's right. He can be taught. You never feel like me. <laughs> Imagine a whole new world of excitement. Imagine carpet. Danger. Whoa, carpet, let's move. And enchantment. It's the story of a poor boy from the streets and a beautiful girl from a palace. Princess Jasmine. They were two very different people. The law says you must be married to a prince. Brought together by one incredible wish. What is it you want most? There's this girl. Pretty. Beautiful. Say l'amour. But she's the princess. To even have a chance, I'd have to be... Say the magic words. Genie. I wish for you to make me a prince. Alright! Hang on to your turban, kid! We're gonna make you a star! Prince Ali, but is he Ali Ababa? But the evil sorcerer Jafar has learned the secret of Aladdin's power. He has the lamp. And he'll stop at nothing to steal it away. It's time to say goodbye. We'll just see about that. This is not done yet, boy! Imagine the world at your command. Genie, I need help. Jasmine won't even let me talk to her. No! Only to discover the greatest power is within. Remember, be yourself. Do you trust me? A whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. Aladdin, featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Come over here, big group hug. Group hug. Never. Ever. Coming this holiday season, Walt Disney Pictures, Aladdin. You never had a friend like me. Welcome back to the School of Movies Disney Specials. With us once again is Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hey there. And we're again joined by Joshua Garrity of Canem Rinse and the Animation Archives. Hello, Josh. Glad to be back. Following the knock out of the park that Beauty and the Beast represented was always going to be a tall order. But Disney came back swinging with John Musker and Ron Clements freshly rested from their stint on Mermaid to deliver a riotous party of a movie, bursting with comic moments, but nonetheless brimming with heart. Aladdin. Now, how much do you folks know about the Aladdin that almost was? About as much as I did on Beauty and the Beast, I think. <laughs> what what elements can you remember from the, the, the bits of production sketches you saw? Well, I mean, Aladdin started out being, was actually 
the idea came from Howard Ashman himself, actually, because he'd pitched it, pitched the idea of doing an Aladdin film and even wrote up a treatment himself. It was sort of his baby project for a long while before uh, he was he and Mencken were uh, kind of pulled off of it to, to help fix up Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. But um, but yeah, he and Alan wrote some songs. Linda Wolverton wrote up a script. As the story was originally going to be, Aladdin was going to be a good deal younger, more like a kind of a young teenage boy. Yeah, like um, a kid. Yeah, a young kid. And it was going to be a bit more f- focused on that kid wanting to like make his mother proud of him. His mother mm. was a very prominent figure in the there story. There was a song called Proud of Your Boy. Yeah, which is still a great, great song. Mm. There, there, were, there were apparently a lot of great songs that were ended up cut from this film. There was a lot, uh, I think like 14 written, but only six are in it. Jeez. It's just it's one of those films where it went through a lot of change as it went, as many of these films do, I suppose. I guess that was the biggest change. It really was, like, it was, the focus was Aladdin as a much younger boy wanting to, like, wanting to make his mother proud. Yeah. Instead, they made him uh, a street rat, or almost rootless, and, uh, uh, Kind of filled with anxiety over who he was, what he represented in the world. Best summed up in the moment when he meets Prince Ahmed, who tells him he's a worthless street rat. I can really relate to Aladdin feeling like he doesn't mean anything to society and nobody would really notice if he just dropped off the map. The idea being he doesn't produce anything of value to a society. He doesn't... Uh, fit in in that same way he he he, he does feel like he's, he's somewhat adrift um that doesn't necessarily mean that i really relate to aladdin himself although he's, he's great fun um something about that the fact that aladdin spends the whole film kind of should i tell the truth well yes that whole <laughs> bit about the genie going tell her the truth I mean, you know, this this could just be something in my adult life but it's it always seemed to me to be wasting time to be lying but again that's the co- that's the core of this. It's the co- whole kind of you know be yourself story, uh, and um, but that all kind of plays in with the Arabian Nights story that that it originally was. I mean, th- these were written around I think the year one thousand, and um, the the original story was actually not dissimilar to, to to what we see played out here. There's that whole sense of sort of hoodwinking the princess. It's 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 kind of a gift on a plate for for Disney to actually be able to make Jasmine savvy to that. To, to make her sharp and a character in her own right who goes through her own journey. I've never been so oh, insulted! Prince Ahmed, you're, you're not leaving so soon, are you? Good luck marrying her off! Oh. Jasmine. Jasmine! 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 Oh, confounded, Raja! So, this is why Prince Ahmed stormed out. Oh, father. Raja was just playing with him. Weren't you, Raja? You were just playing with that overdressed, self-absorbed Prince Ahmed, weren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Dearest, you've got to stop rejecting every suitor who comes to call. The law says you must must be be married married to a a prince prince by your next birthday. The law is wrong. You've only got three more days. Father, I hate being forced into this. If I do marry, I want it to be for love. Jasmine, it's not only this law. 
I'm not going to be around forever, and, well, I... I just want to make sure you're taken care of, provided for. Please, try to understand. I've never done a thing on my own. I've never had any real friends. <laughs> Except you, Raja. I've never even been outside the palace walls. But Jasmine, you're a princess. Then maybe I don't want to be a princess anymore. Oh, I... I <laughs> Ala forbid you should have any daughters. So yeah, the original story of Aladdin that almost was... He had, uh, uh, he was younger, he had a, a mother he was trying to make proud. There, there were also elements that were sort of abandoned in early uh, Aladdin drafts beyond this, which turn up in uh, Return of Jafar, the first straight-to-video Disney sequel, and The King of Thieves, the uh, third one. These two have the um, spurious accolade of being not terrible Disney <laughs> straight-to-video sequels. See also the Lion King sequels, but most of the rest of them suck. So Musker and Clements pitched... Katzenberg this uh Katzenberg ended up shooting it down didn't think that it engaged people well yeah. and uh had them start over from scratch another Black Friday case and it he seems pointed like at Jasmine Black and Fr- said I can see why he would go with her but I can't see why she would go with him you know yeah. she, she's Julia Roberts we need Tom Cruise which yeah, I'm just gonna well. say here that was clearly Jeffrey's deep-seated insecurity speaking there <laughs> Let's compare. Why would a woman like, ever want a man like this? Combined with just a super Hollywood mentality. Mm. And it does seem like there are a lot of these Black Friday events happening now kind of in rapid succession. I don't think it's that all previous Disney movies went so smoothly and didn't get taken back to the drawing board and didn't get started over from scratch now and then. I think it's that now the Disney studio has... Katzenberg and Eisner and these guys who are giving them a hard deadline and a you will get this done by this day sort of thing so that when something goes wrong they it's really a mess it's not just a all right well we'll start over and we'll move the release date back and we'll figure it out it's much more a all right we have two years to figure this out now oh no just crazy pressure situation which is a young man's game (laughs) I wish Rescuers Down Under had a similar Black Friday situation. I know you love it, Dan, but it feels like that film could have been so much more. I agree. There are a lot of films in Disney history that could have used a Black Friday in retrospect. Yeah. Treasure Planet. Yeah. Anyway, um, Katzenberg brought in a screenwriting duo, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. And Terry Rossio to uh, kind of be the brutal consultant guys who come in and say like who just and kill off all the children in the script basically it's just all right that you don't need that yeah the mother thing she's not working you can take her out the uh you you don't need to make it to where aladdin can like have as many wishes as he wants you, should, you really should just make it three and just that they basically just pared it down the way yeah, yeah, just lots of lots of very good advice, which can be very difficult decisions to make deep into story production. Yeah, when you've got something that's working and you're really scared, you don't know for sure what elements should come out to make to fix it <laughs> that won't break it completely. Another Black Friday I can think of is the Emperor's New Groove coming out of the Kingdom of the Sun. That must have been a Black Saturday morning, like even later in the day. <laughs> oh, that whole production just seemed like a nightmare. Yeah. Um, I had not noticed until I was watching it properly with the, you know all of the um, commentaries and stuff and the preponderance 
of the colors of red and blue and what they symbolize through this. Now, today we were watching it with Lyra. It kept turning up again and again and again. Blue, safe, good, truthful, virtuous, the right thing to do. Red, temptation, bad, fire, don't go this way, bad idea, greedy. That makes a lot of sense, actually, the more I think back on it. The Cave of Wonders is uh, you know, basically representing the, this giant blue tiger, and it opens up its enormous red temptation-laden mouth. Al goes down, and he's surrounded by the gold. The gold itself is yellow and neutral, but it's tinged with red because the, outside, the walls of the cave are red. He goes through, led by the blue carpet to the giant blue room there's a giant pool of water in it there's blue steps on a blue or made of blue rocks going up to a blue light shining down on the lamp abu left down the bottom turns around and looks up and what's the color of the jewel that he goes for red red they're then just surrounded with red fire the punishment for their for abu's greediness and um Oh, even going back a little bit, the when uh, Al does a good thing and uh, saves the princess and stops you, because he could just have walked on by and gone crazy, a woman's going to get her hand cut off. And what colour's the apple? Red. Same as the apple Jafar eats at the end. He does a good thing, saves her, gets thrown in prison for it, surrounded by blue. That's okay, you did a good thing. It may not be the end of the world. Then Jafar in disguise takes him out, opens a secret door to What? Very, very red light. Very red. Iago, red. Jafar, clothed in red. Jasmine, clothed in blue, sort of a turquoisey, almost green uh, at times, especially in some of the uh, promotional stuff, but definitely blue, cool. She's truthful all the time, painfully truthful. She never lies except for to that guy when she pretends to be crazy. And to Jafar, and at the time she's wearing red. She even casts off a little blue um, veil to sort of go, I am just casting off this last bit of myself so that I can just play a role for this. Uh, And the Sultan, basically under the thrall of Jafar, he's got a red jewel in his um, turban. And uh, Jafar's keeping him hypnotized with these red jewels in the eyes of his uh, snake. When the genie comes in in a turban dressed as a sort of a human, he's got a blue jewel because the genie, all blue, knows what's the right thing to ask for. No one ever asks genie, but he knows what's the right thing to do. He's always telling Al, tell her the truth. He's Jiminy Cricket. He, he's Al's conscience. And Aladdin, when he's Prince Ali, has a purple jewel in his uh uh, turban, which looks red, and you think, ah, he's got money and greed on his mind at this point. But depending on the light, it's sometimes you know he's thinking about be uh, uh, sort of you know just telling the truth, and his turban goes into the sort of the, the blue spectrum, and it looks sort of more you know a cooler blue. And at the point when he has to decide whether to say no, I'm definitely Prince Ali, or no, I am the guy from the marketplace, and the fireworks are going off. There's red and blue light bursts on either side of his face that's awesome <laughs> next time just watch out for that because it's I, I never realized how overt it was and Al's color by the way folks is purple a combination of red and blue the, the potential to go in either direction that's why he has a purple jewel and that's why he has a little purple waistcoat Game <sighs> <Cave> of wonders <laughs> <laughs>
from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Whoa! Okay, rethink that one. Where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Much better. When the wind's from the east and the sun's from the west and the sand in the glass is right. Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and fly to another Arabian night. Arabian nights, like Arabian days. More often than not, are hotter than hot in a lot of good ways. Arabian nights, need Arabian moon. A fool off his guard could fall and fall hard out there on the dunes. (laughs) So anyway, we begin with the street vendor uh, played by Robin Williams. And this is kind of, there's there's a very good reason for this. Um, Because I've spoken for ages. Anyone want to tell me, have have a guess as to why we start with Robin Williams? To set the tone. Yes. Because, yeah, because the major comedy character of Genie is not going to show up for a good long while. And if he shows up in the middle of the film without any of that comic tone hinted at, it's going to be really weird and probably turn a lot of people off of the movie. Almost like, you know, bringing a bear in suddenly. (laughs) 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 There's no any warning, sudden bear. There's another advantage to it as well. Again, it's this idea of Disney films starting with a story traditionally a book in uh, beauty and the beast it's the stained glass windows arabian the uh, tales from the arabian nights are from an oral history tradition mm. so having yeah. a storyteller there actually introducing it sort of gives you that feel of of a story from that world I love the whole when he goes, City of Mystery, and he sort of lights a match and sort of hides in that kind of, you know, it's a little bit dangerous here. You might get cut. Of enchantment. Oh, God. I'm just going to be doing Robin Williams. Come on down. Oh, God. See, I've got a weird love-hate relationship with Robin Williams. I, I love it when he does his dramatic roles like Good Will Hunting. I hate his comedy roles like Mrs. Doubtfire. But I can't not find them funny because of how funny he is naturally. Yeah. I think he really works in this film. Yeah. Because Robin Williams is kind of a cartoon of a man. Yeah. So he works as a cartoon. Yeah. No, he works exceptionally well for that. Like there is, there are very right and very wrong ways to use Robin Williams in a film. <laughs> and Chris and, Columbus can find all of the latter. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly, Christopher Nolan can find a very inverse right way to use him as well in, in making him actually terrifying. But uh, yeah, he, he was in um, Insomnia. Insomnia. Yeah, yeah, and legit scary because just because he. It's just a subversion of what you expect from him. But He's also scary in uh, One Hour Photo. I haven't actually seen that one. Is that actually good? It's not terrible. Oh, okay. <laughs> I look it up. not terrible. <laughs> Why am I doing his racist <laughs> voice? But you've got a character in Genie who has to be the source of most of the gags and the humor, but also has to be able to go 
percent sincere at specific moments when the film needs him to and it has to be believable when he does and you have to actually feel for him when he does that and williams is really good at shifting between those two so he's actually perfect for this yeah also, uh, We Hate Movies said this. Him being a cartoon gives context to when he suddenly does bits and he suddenly does impressions. If he suddenly starts doing, um, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or if he suddenly starts doing Ed Sullivan and the genie turns into Ed Sullivan, it's like, just for the people who aren't quite keeping up, they're like, right, it's this guy. And you get a quick image. Like, if you don't know who that is by sight, you're not going to have got uh, Robin Williams' impression of him anyway, and it kind of doesn't matter. Just forget it. Um, but like, you might just laugh at the joke because he's suddenly changing into Cab Calloway, for example. And my God, do I love that bit. Um, but if, when he's doing it, Mrs. Doubtfire, and he's like, well, I do voices. Yes, I'm crazy to make a deal with you. And he's like going back and forth and like going, don't make me smack me, sweetheart, I'll do it. And he's like, it's, he needs to turn into someone at that point because otherwise it's just a man emptying his head on screen. <laughs> ah, salam and good evening to you, worthy friend. Please, please come closer. Uh, too close, a little too close. There. Welcome to Agrabah, city of mystery, of enchantment. Uh, the finest merchandise this side of the River Jordan on sale today. Come on down. <laughs> Look at this. Yes. <laughs> Combination hookah and coffee maker. Also make julienne fries. Will that break? Will that? It broke. Oh, look at this. I have never seen one of these intact before. This is the famous Dead Sea Tupperware. Listen. Ah, still good. (laughs) Wait, don't go. I can see that you are only interested in the exceptionally rare. I think then you would be most rewarded to consider this. Do not be fooled by his commonplace appearance. Like so many things, it is not what is outside. But what is inside that counts. This is no ordinary lamp! It once changed the course of a young man's life. A young man who liked this lamp was more than what he seemed. A diamond in the rough. It's so energetic, though. It gives the film so much energy. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's part of the love side of things I have with the guy. (laughs) So, yeah, we begin with The Street Vendor. The comedy is then ably picked up by um, Abu and uh, Iago, the parrot, up until the point where Genie comes along. And they still maintain it after that. But basically, because he's going at 110 miles an hour, they're just kind of there to to, to keep the kids happy. And also, Iago, to keep the adults happy, because he's incredibly cynical and he allows us to, you know, the adults who are just there with their kids to go, okay, yeah, I'm with you, Iago, on this one. believe it i just don't believe it we're never gonna get a hold of that stupid lamp just forget it look at this look at this i'm so ticked off that i'm molting patience iago patience gazim was obviously less than worthy oh there's a big surprise that's an incredible i think i'm gonna have a heart attack and die from that surprise what are we gonna do we got a big problem here a big <coughs> Yes, only one may end. 
I must find this one, this diamond in the rough. Abu is played by anybody? Frank Welker. Wow. Dan and Josh did not know that. <laughs> I, I was talking too much. I was wanting to let somebody else say it. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. So you know you knew it anyway. You can say it if you want. It was already said so well. Okay, right. It is indeed Frank Welker. He also plays the cave, the uh, the giant tiger thing. And um, uh, we've said this one before, but Frank Welker is the king of animal voices. And basically, you know, th- especially throughout the 80s and 90s, if you wanted sort of uh, <laughs> type voice for a Slimer uh, or a for a uni or just like random dogs and cats and stuff, they'd just bring in Frank. Abu is very important, as is Iago, and I said this last week for Beauty and the Beast. There are scenes where it's just exposition. Uh, The bit where uh, Jasmine runs over to um, uh, Jafar and says, what was his crime? And they're sort of arguing over what happened to Aladdin. If you've seen the film 20 times, it's like, yeah, they're going through this bit just so that Jasmine can know about this. But if you've seen it 20 times, then you'll know that Iago was stuck in the door at that point. And the whole shtick while he's like trying to get out of the door, it keeps the momentum going. So you're getting the exposition, you're getting the character development, but you're also getting a bit of comedy shtick at exactly the same time. So it, it, it never really gets old. And um, the, the bit where Aladdin and um, Jasmine are getting close to one another in, in a post-marketplace, Abu is messing around and getting angry and jealous and sort of like acting like um, Aladdin's id, going crazy at that point. And he's keeping the kids sat in their seats laughing so they're not shifting uneasily and going, I don't like seeing teenagers getting to know you. So it's, but it never becomes kind of overt, look at the monkey, folks, which sometimes, I'm going to bring this one up again, Pocahontas does. Well, Abu is a, a fleshed out character, unlike yeah. the, uh, the animals that feature in Pocahontas. Ironically, uh, Flit was voiced by uh, Frank Welker. Yeah. He he may not talk, but he's very expressive, and he has a range of emotions, and and he's not just comedy all the time. There are moments like when he hands the kid the bread, Mm. like that's really moving. Um, it is kind of funny as well, but th- there's more to it than just laughs. It's th- There's a depth to Abu that's not present in Pocahontas comedy inserts, as I will refer to them as. Yeah. We sound like we're ragging on Pocahontas. There- there's many strengths to Pocahontas, but its animal companions are not them. Yeah. Um, they were- appeared to be pasted in. And that's mo- mainly because the- Abu is one of the strengths of Aladdin. He- he's, a- he's a memorable, lovable character. And also, he's a monkey, and definitely a monkey. There's no, no doubt about the fact. He's not a person in a monkey form. He's ampersand. Mm. Only a bit smarter and doesn't throw his feces at people that we know of. Gotta keep one jump ahead of the bread line, one swing ahead of the sword. I steal only what I can't afford. That's everything. One jump ahead of the lawmen, that's all, and that's no joke. These guys don't appreciate I'm broke. Riffraff, straight back, scoundrel, take back. Just a little snack, guys. Take a hint, gotta face the facts. You're my only friend, Abu. Who always said Aladdin's hit the bottom? He's become a one-man rising crime. I blame parents, except he hasn't gone home. Gotta eat to live, gotta still to eat. Tell you all about it when I got the time. 
One jump ahead of the slow pokes. One skip ahead of my doom. Next time, gonna use a nom de plume. One jump ahead of the hitman. One hit ahead of the flock. I think I'll take a stroll around the block. Stop beef! Let's not be too hasty. Still, I think he's tasty. Gotta eat to live, gotta still to eat. Otherwise, we'd get along. One jump ahead of the hoofbeats, one hop ahead of the hump, one trick ahead of disaster. They're quick, but I'm much faster. Here goes, better throw my hand in, wish me happy landing. All I gotta do is jump! I love the fact that you picked up on the whole giving uh, the kids bread. That scene is majorly important to Aladdin. It's trickle-down economics and leading by example. Aladdin's stolen bread, and he shares it with Abu, so you're like, oh, okay, so I guess he shares it with his monkey, so I suppose, you know, I suppose he had to eat. Then he sees the kids, and he gives his whole, the whole chunk of his bread to the girl, to the girl and the boy going through a bin, and um, Abu gets all grumpy and, like, sort of holds his bread back, and the girl gives her bread to the little boy and takes a little tiny bit for herself and moved by both Aladdin's generosity and then the girl's generosity Abu gives over his bread knowing that he and Aladdin can get hold of bread far easier than these guys can at least without them you know getting into real trouble this is how trickle-down economics should work the reason it's held back is because of assholes who refuse to lead by example yeah (laughs) and because of idealists who believe that everyone's going to be exactly as nice as them this is also really important for Aladdin's character too, because yeah. we're Disney's in a tricky situation where their their star hero is a thief yeah. character, and you can't and like you want to not necessarily glamorize like make make being stealing stuff. Seem, yeah, stealing stuff seems super awesome, but you also and you also don't want the character to seem like a immoral jerk type character. So having him give up some food to someone who needs it even more is a very Robin Hood-esque thing to do. Even if it's not the thing that he's always setting out to do, he is a good enough type of person who he will do that if he sees the opportunity. Yeah, they played Aladdin very well. There's a lot of um, uh, production, uh, I suppose, stages to him. If you look at sort of the earlier versions of him, he had a staff for a long time, possibly because of the popularity of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and he needed skills with a bow staff uh, that that integrates itself into that one bit where he'd pole vaults over the uh, side maybe that was just while he was holding a staff but I think an early version of him had a staff he also has MC Hammer Pants now that, that, those are based obviously on, on real Arabian pants but it just so happens that this followed the immense popularity of MC Hammer but the um, the actual visual aesthetic of the film. Do you, do you know what the first thing was that they basically went from for the film, for the look? Well, I know what, like, I know what Eric Goldberg went to, but I, they, before him, they've already had already settled on some things. I feel like they'd looked at. 
I mean, they looked at calligraphy. That yep, at it's Arabic the font. It's this the yeah. font. It, it, this lovely sort of rounded, flowing, uh, organic looking writing. Yeah, all yeah. all curved, soft shapes, and they looked at some of those paintings as well, and that really did inform the whole aesthetic, which then led to uh, Eric Goldberg, who was a new Disney animator at the time. He did some success doing commercials in Britain before then, but uh, he was one of the first animators brought on the film, and he saw this aesthetic that they were going for, and he thought that in term, like, translating that to character design, that like, uh, that working in just very simple curves and curvy shapes, that the ideal person to go to for inspiration for that was Al Hirschfeld, the uh, caricature artist. Yeah. And so he and so he basically built the genie in, in that way, kind of looking to Hirschfeld for inspiration, which then kind of informed the design of all the other characters and the animation style of all the other characters to a certain extent as well. It just kind of bled throughout the film bit by bit. Yeah, the uh, if you if you look at Al Hirschfeld's uh, art style, if any folks have seen Fantasia two thousand, the bit with Rhapsody in Blue in New York, yeah. all of that kind of you know the beautiful, yeah. uh, there everyone's limbs seem to sort of flow almost like Adventure Time. They don't have the bones and the angular side of them uh, to them. So they uh, not everyone in the film conforms to this. Aladdin actually has fairly well defined arms, but a lot of other people just have sort of like roundy shapes for for limbs. And there's a there's a very kind of a, a fluidity to uh, to people, yeah. And it feeds into the animation itself too, which is much more cartoony and mm. l- like that rounded shape kind of thing works in animation very well. It, yeah, like Aladdin's of, I mean, I'd said way back, I think sometime around Jungle Book, that I felt like Disney had settled into a sort of a Disney look for yeah. a long time, and they didn't really deviate from it for. Ages. I mean, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast kind of built upon it and improved it a bit and really brought back the level of polish and execution that had been seen from really early Disney stuff, but mm. it still wasn't a big evolution or a significant change in the design. But Aladdin feels really fresh and new and very different, and it, I think it marks the point where Disney actually started really custom designing the look for each new film they made. Like, if you look ahead to Pocahontas and Hercules and yeah. Mulan, Making you them really distinct. start seeing yeah. you start seeing variety again, and I love it. And uh, um, almost all of these uh, animation stars, they, they start with the culture and then work outwards from there. So Mulan, they, they actually make everything look significantly uh, more, more Chinese in, in style. It's not just slap Disney animation on them and stick Chinese hats on obviously Caucasian-looking people. It's uh, they, they go in and then work backwards from there. Another thing that no one ever mentions, and it, maybe it wasn't in any way uh, contributory. Could any, could Dan and Josh, could you just Google the Queen album, A Kind of Magic? And folks at home, you can do this too. I see what you're talking uh, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it could be entirely coincidence, but Queen there looked like four genies. They really do. And, oh, hey, it's A Kind of Magic. It looks like a genie bit. It does. All like, yeah, genie has turned into all of Queen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I say, could be entirely coincidental. Maybe not. We don't know. Poor boy, 
no siree They'd find out There's so much more to So yeah, Abu, as well as being uh, 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 all these animal voices, uh, Frank Welker is also Megatron and Soundwave and, and Doctor Claw other people and millions of Fred from Scooby Doo, <laughs> and you've you've heard his voice over and over again, and he's one of these sort of unsung heroes that you know, everyone has heard and knows, but it's never really made clear. So that's why you know when he didn't turn up in the Transformers films as Megatron, I was like, what the flip. Anyway, we've got another one of those guys in this film as well, in Jim Cummings. Oh yeah, Jim Cummings, who's, who is also hundreds and hundreds of characters you know. Who is uh, he's racing uh, Prince in the Frog? Yeah, yeah. In this one, he's voice. Oh, what's the character's name? Razul. Uh, Razul, and we also just several keep of the other. running into each other, don't we, Street Rat? He's kind of Irish. <laughs> <laughs> And also voicing Tigger now. He voices tons and tons of characters. Yeah. I think he even voices a bunch of other side incidental characters in this. Lots of other shopkeeps. Mm. He was the stories. giant angry blue centaur Nessus in Hercules as well. I like him fiery. He's, he's capable of a very kind of uh, rank, uh, raucous voice. I kind of wish the Assassin's Creed games didn't involve slaughter like wholesale slaughter, because I'd love to show Lyra a parkour game in the style that, uh, you know, basically, because, like, I suppose Prince of Persia 2008 is probably the closest to this in, st- in terms of, you know, you got this, uh, the, uh, 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 a very elegant woman and a, a, a dirty little street rat. Uh, unfortunately, it's so far away from civilization, you never really get the sense of a, of a, a bustling Arabian city. Uh, but unfortunately, if you're going to do it in Assassin's Creed, there's going to be murder involved. I kind of wish that Ubisoft would use that to make something more that isn't just Assassin's Creed. One thing I would like to say about the framing of Aladdin, and I don't know if it would have been as noticeable had we not just seen Beauty and the Beast, mm. but the beats of Aladdin and the beats of Beauty and the Beast, particularly at the beginning, are very, very similar. Yeah. You've got uh, an intro that is effectively quite separate from the rest of the film, and then you've got the uh, the story of the beast and how he came to where he is and Jafar looking for the lamp and sending the thief in to be swallowed and you basically go from who could ever truly love a beast and I must seek out this diamond in the rough cut to your hero doing their I want song which then segues into kind of talking about what their life is and how they would like it to change um and I just, I found it really impressive the way those beats were kind of paralleled. Although I think if they'd stuck with that exact same formula for every film that came afterwards, it had got a bit boring in the end. Yeah, it does feel like there is a similarity in structure. And I expect when we get to some films in the future, we might see them kind of grasping at that same structure again, but perhaps not so effectively. Yes. I'm not actually sure. I may be wrong, but I kind of, I kind of suspect that's going to happen. Uh, Treasure Planet again. I keep going back yeah. to this one. When they meet Martin Short, it's like, this guy's going to be just as good as Robin Williams. No, he's not! Oh, boy. God! Jafar? Oh, princess. Jafar! 
How may I be of service to you? The guards just took a boy from the market, on your orders. Oh, your father has charged me with keeping peace in Agrabah. The boy was a criminal. What was his crime? I can't breathe. Jafar! Why, kidnapping the princess, of course. Oh, you can he didn't kidnap me. I ran away. Oh, dear. Oh, how frightfully upsetting. Had I but known... What do you mean? Sadly, the boy's sentence has already been carried out. What sentence? Death. <gasps> By beheading. No. <gasps> I am exceedingly sorry, princess. How could you? <laughs> so... How did it go? I think she took it rather well. It's all my fault, Raja. I didn't even know his name. Okay, so Jasmine. Now, Sharon, I'm going to go over to you on this one. Uh, Jasmine is one of the new breed of proactive Disney princesses. She is indeed. Did yes. she originally impress you back when you were younger? or I can't remember. And this is, this is quite shocking, actually, and I'm rather ashamed of myself. Aladdin was the first Disney film I saw in the cinema. Mm -hmm. I remember very little about it. Do you remember Other laughing? Than, I, I vaguely remember laughing, but sort of the genie being this big, loud, annoying thing. <laughs> I, I really had no sense whatsoever when I was about 14. I just none at all. So... Bear in mind, that Beauty and the Beast episode you heard last week, we recorded all three hours of that before we started on In on Aladdin. I don't recommend that, folks. Foolish. Foolish boy. Oh my god, my mind's gone completely blank. Right, okay. We're all tired. <laughs> Sharon, is Jasmine a good character? I'd say one of the most impressive things about Jasmine is that she is... Obviously, she doesn't have as much screen time as Aladdin. It's called Aladdin. But her arc parallels his quite neatly. When they first meet, they're both in this position of trying to get away from the, the restrictions of their circumstances. And you have that lovely moment where they're he's talking about the palace and how nice it would be to live there and she's really impressed with the fact that he lives in this hovel where at least he gets to make all his own decisions and, and go wherever he wants and do whatever he wants which of course he doesn't because he's limited by the palace guards and starvation and that kind of thing but there's this lovely little differential between them where it's like He's looking for the freedom from being chased and having to, you know, never knowing where your next meal's coming from. And she's looking for the freedom to make her own decisions and not be restricted by this whole, 
as a princess, you're basically symbolic of the kingdom and you're going to be effectively sold off to whoever's going to be the next sultan. Mm. And it doesn't frame it in terms of either of them being wrong, that she's being spoiled and petulant and privileged by not realising that the fact that she will never have to worry about having enough to eat or uh, or anything like that is actually a good thing. And he's not um, uh, missing the point of his freedom to, to come and go as he pleases and, and not have to be constantly ordered around and expected to do what people want you to do. Mm. So it kind of puts their problems on an equal footing in a way. And that is sort of the basis of their relationship. There is a, a give and take about it. There is very much a sense of balance about the two of them. They're about the same size. Um, Aladdin has quite a, a lithe frame as well, so they're not wildly dissimilar in shape. They wear very similar clothes. They have uh, their trousers have a, a similar shape to them. Mm. Um, and the, the point where he says that they're brother and sister, you can believe it because they look quite similar as well. So there's there's that nice parity to them, which is totally different to Beauty and the Beast because obviously Beast is huge and Belle is very tiny and, yeah. um, you know, their circumstances are so completely different. So I, I think I, I did um, enjoy the way that played out and how uh, in the final analysis of the uh, the end game she takes a, a part in actually settling things rather than simply sitting in the corner waiting for everything to happen. And it's solved by both of them having cunning ideas rather than um, her just using her womanly charms uh, and or him just using his masculine strength. They both basically prove that they've got a head on their shoulders. That's right. And also, I mean, she... she after they've had their their meeting and Aladdin gets captured, she actually makes the choice to go back to the palace to try and convince Jafar to release him. So that's kind of like she's seizing her destiny in her own hands, if you like. She's out of the palace at that point. She could just keep going, but she doesn't. She goes back because she wants to, um, uh, to actually do something for somebody else. Mm. If you compare her to the Beast when she's uh, told she's, you know, got to... Uh, accept her place and uh, by the sultan and uh, she's you know and she's going to have to marry and she's not really going to have much of a choice on that if this was the beast he'd smash something to pieces jasmine's reaction is to set her birds free and to be happy for them altogether a lot more mature than Beast but at the same time she does have that uh, slightly girlish petulance about her which keeps her just on the right side of pouty and uh, charming. I love her design as well just she, she's not as like exaggerated as a character like Genie is or a lot or a lot of even the other human characters but there's mm. enough simplification kind of to her design and her features that allows her to be really expressive yeah. just have some really great expressions which I really like it seems odd to, to, to get churlish about it. It might have behooved Disney at this point to get too 
Arab actors to actually portray these guys because they both sound whiter than white. Maybe a little bit less so for, for Jasmine, but Disney was starting to really venture out into these other cultures. So uh, specifically with Pocahontas, they managed to get uh, a Native American actress with uh, Mulan uh, Chinese. So ultimately it stands to reason that uh, Aladdin didn't necessarily have to sound quite as all American as it ended up doing. As it was they managed to avoid not being too racist. There was one line of the original song of Arabian Nights. Anyone know what, what it was before it was rewritten? My original version actually had it. It's uh, Me, where I they cut off your ear, like cut off your yeah. ear if they don't like your face. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I come from a land from a faraway place where caravan camels roam, where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. So yeah, I suppose if you if you want to, you know, the, the, this film came out during the Gulf War. You probably want to keep people sort of yeah, try to keep the conflagration as minimal as possible. Um, so yeah, it's, again, that possibly may have uh, been why they just went for all American at that point. Maybe didn't want to rock the boat. I don't know. Maybe just that they're going. Look, this is this is a comedy. These guys need to be just naturally um, charming and funny, and that's not the right actors turned up of Arabic descent who were able to convey that. But what is interesting is Eric Goldberg interpreted the fact that uh, he put a certain amount of uh, Jewish influence into the genie, and then Robin started using Yiddish idioms. Now, a little pun on there. Oy. And just the, what ended up happening was that it was at least to Eric, and if you kind of just want to scratch below the surface yourself, he was kind of smoothing over a rather long-standing, very bloody and bitter conflict by having an Arab make best friends with a Jew. So that was that was very meaningful to Eric, and uh, it's I, I had not thought about it like that until he'd mentioned it, possibly because Al, Al comes off as so incredibly white bread. Which was, of course, the idea, because Katzenberg wanted him to be like Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. I think smoothing over is probably the wrong phrase, but I think uh, Goldberg was... Sorry, smoothing over sounds making... like it's sweeping it under the rug. Making No, 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 but he, he was kind of making the point of this is... Not in a big, massive, clangy way, but this is where I stand on the situation kind yeah. of statement, if that makes sense. That you could, if you wanted to, completely ignore... Yeah, but it's not overt. And I like the fact that that's what Goldberg thought, but they, that Disney don't go, ah, ah. Although it would have been ballsy if they had, especially as I say, during the middle of the Gulf War when uh, the Arabic people were not number one in America. Well, I'm sure America weren't exactly number one in the Arab people's book either. Of course, but this was an American film, and they had to. They, they had some very skittish people, uh, you know, in the to making sure that they didn't have an incredibly controversial bomb on their hands following Beauty and the Beast, because that could have uh, ended their career run at that point. Anyway, moving on from this rather weighty material, Jafar, the shifty and <laughs> selfish royal vizier with his magnificent hands. As you say, J uh, Josh, last week, he is a plain-dealing villain. But a fun one. Yeah. Um He's not deep at all, but he's an entertaining character when he's on screen. Um, 
I I mean, there are definitely ways they could have made him a more meaningful character, uh, you know, based on the, you know, the story and how it, you know, progresses. Mm. But for, you know, what we get, I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm not too unhappy that he's the way he is because that you know they kind of lean into it, they embrace it, and uh, they know exactly who Jafar is. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it hurts the film that he is a pretty straight cut, just villain type character. I, I think he, I think he totally works. And Jonathan Freeman's crazy Jafar laugh sounds throat shredding. Yeah. <laughs> Like every time I hear it, I kind of want to try imitating it, but I don't dare. <laughs> that really seems like it would hurt. <laughs> uh, having done a, a laugh that uh, is, is quite that intense, I can tell you right now, it's not actually a, that a pleasant experience. With all due respect, your rottenness, couldn't we just wait for a real storm? Save your breath, Iago. Faster! Yes, almighty evil one! Tell the path sands of time. Reveal to me the one who can enter the cave. Yes. Yes. There he is. My diamond in the rough. That's him? That's the clown we've been waiting for! Let's have the gods extend him an invitation to the palace. Shall we? Well. <laughs> Sharon, you pointed out there's a lot of self-blame going on with Jasmine once uh, Aladdin's been thrown in jail. It's all my fault. That's right. Yeah, she's. It just again it echoed because of uh, having just watched Beauty and the Beast. Belle says about three times through the course of that film, "It's all my fault." So it just hit me when Jasmine said it, and I wondered whether they were going down the path of the princesses or the the heroines all being very, very big on the guilt and self-blame. However, uh, about three quarters of the way through the film, Aladdin says it's all my fault as well. And I realized it's actually the heroes generally, as in the heroic characters taking very weighty responsibilities that aren't necessarily entirely theirs, but it's the fact that they look at the situation and think I could have done better there is something that I did here that caused things to go wrong that makes them heroic. It's the people like Gaston and the younger beast who try to reject any responsibility for what's going wrong that are your villains in the making. Oh, and uh, when uh, Jafar in disguise offers Aladdin some jewels to say, uh, you know, come with me to the Cave of Wonders, what colour are the jewels? Red. Red. They all are. Um, So in the cave we meet the carpet wonderful creation this was one of those uh, merging of um 2d cell animation and uh computer animation dan how much do you know about this one a uh, good bit there's still some tiny pieces of the puzzle that i still haven't figured out exactly how they did but they generally they assigned uh, carpet as a character to to one of the animators who was not super thrilled about it at first it's a carpet it's a it's yeah. a rectangle of cloth yeah that it's Really hard to get character out of that. Oh, what was the animator? That's going to bug me. Randy Cartwright. Yeah. But they wanted to also have a really ornate pattern on the carpet, which is not something that you want 
an animator to have to draw every frame because yeah. it's just going to it's going to look inconsistent and it's going to be really crazy hard for them to do. It's interlocked it's, uh, scimitars, roaring tigers, and flames. It foreshadows the attack that's about to happen. Yeah, exactly. It's, it w- it would have been another Dalmatian spot situation yeah. if, for the animators, but uh, which so precipitated they, the Xeroxing process because they needed to do that many spots. They had to up, upgrade and do something different. Yeah, so their solution was well, they first tried just doing the carpet as a 3D object character, but it just wasn't quite working. It, it felt very 3D, and it would have this would early have on. Out of the, if you remember, like, commercials from back in the day, which had, like, sort of wraparound 3D, and just think about how absolutely horrible that would have looked. Yeah, it, 3D was not in a place to be pulling off a, something like the carpet at that point. Still, but, uh, so basically what, they did a, four hard, years a hybrid story? type thing. Yeah, well, oh, three years. Yeah, I guess Toy Story would have been in development, and Toy Story definitely couldn't have done it either. So yeah. it, it would have been a while before Carpet would have looked good in full 3D. But basically, they had Randy Cartwright hand draw animate the carpet as a character, and then they basically digitally, uh, what's the right word? Superimposed? Overlay? Yeah, I guess that's sort of, yeah, they digitally overlaid the carpet pattern over that drawing and so the tassels are all still the hand animated 2d character and the and all the poses are still the uh are the animation of uh, of cartwrights but the uh pattern is overlaid it and it's mm. very successful actually yeah. carpet's a wonderful character and that doesn't say a word the whole time and um could have come off far too much like a dog it ends up being like a child very eager to help aladdin and uh, as soon as uh, as soon as it gets rejected by abu and starts to slink away all sad and bent over every child in the audience would have gone no come back and you know i would imagine a lot of the adults as well so uh, it, it's it masterfully handled there and then once once you you've got him along for the ride and he saves aladdin's life repeatedly you suddenly start you know he's one of the gang at that point He's just, he's a good person to know. So, um, a person, I say person. There's a bit when uh, Abu's going towards uh, the jewel and the carpet, who's been looking at Aladdin, turns around and looks at Abu. With what? He doesn't have eyes! <laughs> and he goes, Ooh, and sort of shakes its, not head, but like its, its flank. And then goes to, to get up... <laughs> There's even a point where um, uh, Disney, uh, Disney Genie asks, how's Aladdin doing? And the carpet draws a tassel across a neck that it makes out of cloth. So it, it, it's a really excellent way of, of making it see, it anthropomorphizes a bit of cloth. So, and yeah. one, of the, one of the early tests a lot of 2D animators will take is animating a sack of flour basically mm. doing a whole lot of different things and just trying to get a bunch of character in and it for getting a lot of physicality and a lot of motion, but making it an inanimate object like that feel yeah. like it has some character to it, which is totally what this carpet exercise is. And it's in the hands of a very accomplished animator and it really has all kinds of character to it. And he, it's incredible that he actually manages to make these poses and uh, all this acting communicate with what little he has to work with. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the bit where Aladdin approaches the lamp, uh, he, it's so like Raiders at that point. It's sort of walking towards it. He, it's so like Raiders, he may as well pull a bag of sand from his pocket. And uh, they were kind of worried that Spielberg would get upset. This was back in the day where when you referenced things in animation, they were sort of like, oh, can, can we even do this? Are we going to get into trouble for this? Now I, I kind of get the feeling that pretty much anything goes. 
and you know thanks to Simpsons and then Family Guy and all, all you know some of the uh, other best uh, animated shows on TV they've now covered so many films that it's kind of like the sincerest form of flattery is to be referenced in any way in uh, a leading animated show or a Disney film or a DreamWorks film or you know as long as it's not done badly hence Martin Scorsese himself turning up in Shark Tell that really rubbish film <laughs> Notice that at the end of the lava sequence, when Aladdin and uh, uh, company escape from the torrent of molten rock, there's almost a hands-like shape of uh, in the flames. It's almost like the cave is trying to trying to hang on to him and grip him, and uh, it's uh, there's kind of a knight on bald mountain feel to this bit as well. Yeah, there kind of is. It really does. It very much feels like this cave is intentionally throwing everything possible at them to. Yeah, stop to stop them. And also, I love the fact that it melts the jewel that Abu went after. Like, you know, kind of, I would melt this jewel and ten thousand others if it just meant I could kill you guys for coming in and <laughs> stealing when I've told you not to. How many times do I have to tell you not to? Imagine how old this cave is, how many thieves it's had coming into its belly and trying to steal stuff. It's homicidal at this stage. Kudos to them for making the Cave of Wonders entrance not look terrible even still yeah that that's should the, have looked terrible the, that's the first 3d character ish it's, it's definitely the first 3d character that ish. disney has ever put in one of their films and i mean it's still it looks you it's aged but it still works yeah it still looks pretty good actually every version of aladdin i uh, heard up to this point um before i saw the uh, the film the cave was never characterized that's completely new. And I, I love the fact that they did that. It gives a sense of uh, uh, mysticism and magic that goes way beyond the movie that we don't know about. I love that. Yeah, having that tiger head come out of the sand and with that big booming voice in the first five minutes of the movie really – like I remember as a kid that just like I was 100% focused on the movie from then on because I just loved that bit. And then we meet the genie and he does a lot of extremely funny things <laughs> that we've already sort of mentioned. Son of a jackal! Oh, whoever he was, he's long gone with that lamp. <laughs> Why, you hairy little thief! Looks like such a beat-up, worthless piece of junk. Hey, I, I think there's something written here, but it's it, it's hard to make out. <laughs> thousand years will give you such a crick in the neck. Hang on a second. Whoa! Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm telling you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? Or how about Laddie? Sounds like, here, boy. Come on, Laddie. <laughs> I must have hit my head harder than I thought. Do you smoke? Mind if I do? <laughs> oh, sorry, Cheat. I hope I didn't sing the fur. Yo, Rockman, haven't seen you in a few millennia. Give me some tassel. Yeah, yo, yo. Say, 
You're a lot smaller than my last master. Either that or I'm getting bigger. Look at me from the side. Do I look different to you? Wait, wait a minute. I'm your master? That's right. He can be taught. What would you wish of me? The ever impressive. The one contained. But never duplicated. Genie of the Lamp. Right here, direct from the lamp. Right here for your very much wish fulfillment. Thank you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wish fulfillment? Three wishes to be exact. An ixnay on the wishing for more wishes. That's it. No substitutions, exchanges, or refunds. <laughs> I will mention the tension that three wishes adds over infinite wishes. This was one of the uh, earlier things. Um, they they were going to go with infinite wishes, but that's kind of ridiculous. The idea that you know Aladdin could then basically just wish for anything. It, a it gives the animators a hell of a lot of a job to uh, uh, create all of this stuff but you can't really engage with infinite wishes and see there's no ten, there's no feeling of like well what's he going to do now because he could literally do anything so there's that's a different kind of story in terms of you know where could you possibly go with that and you could really go like meta with it or, or got just you know break the formula break the mold entirely but that's not what this film is about ultimately there needs to be a tension um of if you had this choice it's a very tough one to make, and if you get it wrong, you could be in worse circumstances than when you started. A lot of uh, Three Wishes stories tend to be uh, a rather more uh, malicious djinn, someone who kind of almost traps you into uh, asking for something and then giving it to you literally. If the devil ever grants your wish, whatever comes of it is going to be awful. So... Um, yeah, the, the, the idea that uh, Al has to choose something, Al has to be very careful and creative about it, makes it much more of a story. Yeah, the infinite wishes thing, I th- it seems much more like a remnant of the previous story about it, like being, making his mother proud of him that they were originally thinking of telling. Because in that situation, then you have Aladdin yeah. making wish after wish after wish and basically yeah. getting everything. And at that point, expecting his mother's going to be proud of him and his mother, cl- like, comes in and sees this and sees that it's it's not anything he's doing he's just wishing and getting lots of stuff and getting all kinds of power and it's it does not impress her at all and which makes total see, sense for that story see now i'm imagining robin williams is his mother going oh here he is mr big shot yeah he comes in here with all of his fineries yeah how about your poor mother she's still living in a hovel and yeah, suddenly the, the 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 onus becomes on on, on aladdin's mum and her ridiculous standards yeah, it's definitely for what Aladdin turned into instead, the three wishes limitation is brilliant, especially with the additional factor added in of the genie wanting to be free and Aladdin knowing that that third wish is already kind of dedicated and to something and locked down. He's really only got two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as again, the, the the fact that Aladdin decides that at that early stage he's going to be a stand-up guy is a nice sort of... Um, Okay, you're gonna. It's kind of a. It's a statement that he then has to stick to, and uh, yeah. like our feelings about Aladdin throughout the movie. It becomes. Uh, it becomes then very difficult to uh, to to stick along with him when he says, "I'm sorry, genie, I can't give you your freedom." And you're with the genie at that point. You're like, "Oh, you not." Uh, he's seen 
this is the thing about the genie. He's seen so many people make foolish wishes and come a cropper to it that it's like, well, no one ever asks me. No one ever wants to know exactly what comes of the man who wishes for all the gold in the world because they all they're all so inter- like, tied up in what they want. It makes it gives Aladdin one more thing that he has to choose whether to be truthful or turn into a lie retroactively. Yeah, which at, at a time when he is already struggling with a lot of truth and lies moral scenarios it's possibly oversimplification to say that the point of the film is to be yourself because ultimately being yourself could be anything you that as a a person could actually be not very nice at all what i suppose it really comes down to is just be a stand-up guy and tell the truth really that you can integrate yourself into that I think as well there's an element of um, Aladdin having all of this self-doubt at the beginning and feeling like he thinks he's more than everybody else sees him as, Mm. but he has no immediate proof for that. But by the end of the film, it's not about him going out and doing something marvellously heroic and saving the world. And, and therefore forcing the world to recognise how special he really is. It's about him proving to himself that he's worth something in what is actually quite a small-scale act and demonstrating uh, that it's not just about him being important to the world, it's about other people being important to him. Yeah. That's what we've just finished reviewing the uh, Michael Bay Transformers films uh, right now. And this would have been a long time ago in the podcast terms. But we uh, talked all about a little boy who wanted to be special. And it's really, really hard to get with someone who wants to be special but doesn't seem to give a... Flip. Darn about anyone else. Not really. And so uh, it, it's a tightrope they were walking with this one because ultimately if, if uh, Aladdin ever behaves, lies and behaves too selfishly, you lose engagement with the audience. But if he behaves too much like a goody two-shoes, people can't relate to that. It's Woody is an excellent example of how to handle this kind of character. Woody behaves in ways that you're like, you're better than this, man. And you need to already know that from the get-go. Yeah, and but also believe that the character would choose to do this because you know how the character feels yeah. at that time. Like yeah. you know Woody is super insecure and about his place and you know that he would make that mistake and so you understand it, but you're just like don't do it. Make the right choice. <laughs> don't not buzz out the window. <laughs> it's the same thing with the beast though as well. You know he's acting the way he is out of insecurity. And so you are yeah. more inclined to be sympathetic to it than if you just thought, well, why is he behaving like this? I think it's because he's insecure, but I've seen no evidence of that. He might just be horrible. Well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves. Sherry's out of head, a thousand tails. Master you in luck, cause up your sleeves you got a brand of magic never fails. You got some power in your corner now, some heavy ammunition in your can. You got some punch, damn! Yahoo and how, say all you gotta do is rub that lamp. And I'll say, Mr. Lancer, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. <laughs> Life is your restaurant, and I'm your man of Come on, whisper what it is you 
Well, you ain't never had a friend like me. Yes, sir. We pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shine. Say what you wish, it's yours. True dish about a little more boggly As I'm a column A, try all of column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. It's really hard to discuss the genie because how do you discuss comedy? That's why we don't usually cover comedies in the uh, uh, in the podcast because you can't just say it's really funny when he suddenly becomes Rodney Dangerfield, a man who's also really funny and sounds like a shrug would sound. <laughs> it's really funny when he suddenly becomes Jack Nicholson and goes, all right, Sparky, here's the deal. If you want to court the little lady, you got to be a straight shooter, do you got it? How do you describe why a person's funny? How is it done? He just is. Well, I also think if you analyse jokes, you kind of ruin them as well. So yeah. you can't explain. You're damned why if it's you funny, do, yeah. damned if you don't. Yeah. So it, okay. yeah, it is hard to talk about the genie, but he is a, an essential element of this film, mm. um, and his humour adds so much. Yeah. Um, and the the animators as well. Um, I I. I I imagine the animators loved Robin Williams during this uh, film's production mm. because he gives them so much to work with um, throughout. And a lot of the comedy is generated by them. Uh, Robin Williams gives them the fuel, but they, they make something special with it. The the whole, um, I suppose, the, the, the second half, once he's met Jeannie, becomes basically just like this party the whole way through. There are moments of, of a sudden and extreme drama, but most of the time with the dream Jeannie there, it's just like you you can't even you can't even count the laughs. It's not, I mean, like once you're an adult, you're not going to be splitting your sides laughing, especially once you've seen it 25 times. But, you know, for, for a, a kid, it, it must have been a giddy thrill to be there in the cinema. And... Um, one of the little stories one of the animators mentioned was uh, that one of the most gratifying things about making the film that he ever heard was he was listening to a radio show um, out around about the same time as the movie came out. And uh, somebody had called in and they were really sad and depressed. And the DJ suddenly said, look, just go see Aladdin. It's great. You'll have a great time. Effectively billing the film as an antidepressant, which it is, I suppose. 
if you were feeling down and for example, for some reason hadn't seen this film, it'd be really hard to get out of the end of it and not be feeling a little bit better. I'm surprised that given how much relatively contemporary humor is like infuses this movie much more so than any Disney film before that it actually still does work and hold up. It, it feels like a standard Disney fairy tale story smashed up with a Looney Tunes episode. Mm. It is a bit bug funny, isn't he? He totally is. And with lots of those kind of like, Animaniacs style like references and impressions of current characters like stuff that you don't even necessarily need to know who they're imitating it's still pretty funny and like just Looney Tunes kind of has that feel in general especially now when a lot of these famous people that they'd be imitating are completely lost on us it's it's still a funny imitation this is just such a different Disney film like not uh, until now I can't think of any other one that has been this much about being a comedy yeah not straight up, yeah. There, yeah. There, there's a lot of adventures. There's a, a lot of romances and, and a couple of fairy tales. But, yeah, this is a comedy, straight up. With, That's- with the sweeping fairy tale romance in there as well. It somehow it manages to integrate all of this. That's possibly why Jafar had to be quite such a straight villain. Because... You can laugh at somebody who is that out and out evil Mm. and wicked and whose greed and self-interested motivations are totally worn on their sleeve because they're not really a threat because you you kind of know that they're going to have the rug pulled out from under them before too long they want too much yeah yeah. yeah, and I mean, how like seriously are you going to be able to take like an actual complex villain type character with Gilbert Gottfried on his shoulder? That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> One of the most abiding parts of the you film, if have... it weren't for the genie, we'd rem- be remembering him first. I was going to say, yeah, like it'd be a bit weird if Frollo was in this movie. <laughs> Just yeah. like a dramatic <laughs> shift in tone. I will have um... Jasmine. <laughs> 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 Or, or if you found out something really tragic about Jafar, you're like, oh, I actually kind of want him to win now. <laughs> or Jafar eats some of the genie's delicious baklava and then flashes back to when he was a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> I just got that. Thank you for choosing Magic Carpet for all your travel needs. Don't stand until the rug has come to a complete stop. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, how about that, Mr. Doubting Mustafa? Oh, you sure showed me. Now, about my three wishes. Dust mine ears deceive me. Three? You are down by one, boy! Uh, no, I never actually wished to get out of the cave. <laughs> you did that on your own. Oh. Well, I feel sheepish. All right, you bad boy. But no more freebies. Fair deal. So, three wishes. I want them to be good. What would you wish for? Me? No one's ever asked me that before. Well, in my case, I'll forget it. What? No, I can't. (laughs) Come on, tell me. Freedom. You're a prisoner? It's all part and parcel of the whole genie gig. Phenomenal cosmic powers! genie that's terrible but oh to be free not to have to go what do you need 
What do you need? What do you need? To be my own master. Such a thing would be greater than all the magic and all the treasures in all the world. But what am I talking about? Let's get real here. It's not going to happen. Genie, wake up and smell the hummus. Why not? The only way I get out of this is if my master wishes me out. So, you can guess how often that's happened. I'll do it. I'll set you free. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> no, really, I promise. After I make my first two wishes, I'll use my third wish to set you free. Well, here's hoping. All right. Let's make some magic! So how about it? What is it you want most? Well, there's this girl. <laughs> Wrong! I can't make anybody fall in love, remember? Oh, but, but Jeannie, she's smart and, and fun and... Pretty? Beautiful! She's got these eyes that just... and this hair. Wow, and her smile? Ah, <sighs> me. Say hello. But she's the princess. To even have a chance, I'd have to be... Hey. Can you make me a prince? Oh, let's see. Chicken a la king? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's king, king crab. Ow. I hate when I do that. Caesar salad. Ah. Tu brute? Nope. Aha. To make a prince. Now, is that an official wish? Say the magic words. Genie. I wish for you to make me a prince. All right! Yo, yo, woo, woo, woo. First, that fez and vest combo is much too third century. These patches, what are we trying to say? Beggar? No. Let's work with me here. Ooh, I like it muy macho. Now, still need something. What does it say to me? It says, mode of transportation. Excuse me, monkey boy. Aqui, over here. Here he comes, and what better way to make your grand entrance on the streets of Agrabah than riding your very own brand oh, new camel! Watch out, they spit. Hmm, not enough. Still not enough. Oh, let's see, what do you need? What do you need? Yes! He's a lalambo shimindambo! Talk about your trunk space, check this action out. Yaboo, <laughs> you look good. He's got the outfit. He's got the elephant. But we're not through yet. Hang on to your turban, kid. We're gonna make you a star. So Al gets all tied up with lying and the whole uh, whole new world happens. Again, when I was a kid, didn't really like this one. Didn't really like the big romantic songs. Now I really do. Why? Why? Anyone? Maybe you just need a little more experience in life to be able to appreciate it. Well, I don't know. I think as a kid, you don't appreciate quiet moments. Yeah. Or romance. As, as an adult, yeah. you... Yeah, or, or, or like you have no experience with romance. Like romance is a completely foreign concept mm. to you as a kid. It's, it seems kind of weird and gross, and you don't really want to know more about it. But like when you're an adult, you actually know what romance is. And even if you just had a little experience with it, then it's then it can be much more touching, and you actually have a reason to care about it. And I love this song and it's this this isn't one that was written by ashman this is one that uh tim rice uh who kind of came in to fill ashman's uh kind of shoes on the this production after ashman passed he he wrote the lyrics too and it uh really did just show that (laughs) I, i think even alan minken at that point with ashman passing was wondering if like there was any point to him continuing doing this or if like yeah. he was even going to be able to keep doing doing that working on the level that he had before and i think some of the songs they've that uh he and tim rice managed 
in this film in like in Howard's absence really did prove that he was well capable of going forward on his own. Yeah. Did, uh, did Howard write one jump the, uh, the, the marketplace song? I feel like he did. It might've been modified a little bit in certain places, but I, I feel like he did. It's, it feels like his because of the line, one step ahead of my doom next time going to use a nom de plume. He loved like fun little puns and sticking them into like 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 words you would never hear in any other song ever before or since. Um, and I, I just I love the wordplay of stuff like Little Ship of Horrors. And uh, this, I suppose, really is the last gasp of um, of, of his. Uh, we we feel his influence throughout the le- the rest of the nineties. Um, specifically, for some reason, it really feels like he was sort of there in spirit for the Princess and the Frog. I'm not sure why, but um, maybe we'll get more of a handle on that once we get to that film. But um, uh, one jump was written by Tim Rice. Howard Ashman wrote Arabian Nights, uh, Friend Like Me, Proud of Your Boy, which is a song that never got used. Uh, How quick they forget another song that never got used. High Adventure, another song that never got used. And Prince Ali. Is this the only song to use the word genuflect in it, it, which means to lower one's body? Write in and let us know. Or don't. I kind of like Howard having this one. Hey you, let us through, it's a bright new star Oh come, be the first on your block to meet his eye Make way, here he comes, ring bell, bang the drum Are you gonna love this guy? Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa Genuflect, show some respect down on one knee Now try your best to stay calm Brush up your Sunday salon then come and meet his spectacular coterie. Prince Ali, mighty is he, Ali Ababwa. Strong as ten regular men, definitely. He faced galloping hordes. A hundred bad guys with swords. Who sent those goons to their lords? Why, Prince Ali. He's got 75 golden cans. Don't they look lovely, June? Fabulous, Harry. I love the feathers. When it comes to exotic type mammals, has he got a zoo? I'm telling you, it's a world class menagerie. Prince Ali, handsome as hell, That physique, how can I speak? Wake at the name. Well, get on out in that square. I just develop a pair. Prince Ali, 
Paris was a sight lovely to see. And that's the people is why he got dialed up and dropped by. The 60 elephants, mamas, bears and lions, a fresh and mortgages, 40 bakers, his cooks, his bakers, his birds, and one I think three of the songs, including Arabian Nights, were were written by Ashman, and um, and yeah, then then that was it. And um, uh, Tim Rice was on the scene, and thank God he was because the Lion King would have been diminished without his presence as well. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, he, he's definitely steady hands uh, to be to be in there, and um, and I'm very glad that uh, Mencken continued being a major um, presence in uh, Disney uh, films in, in their score as well, because he made things like Hercules. Again, actually, Hercules feels a lot like uh, Little Shop of Horrors as well, principally because it's got the soul-singing Greek chorus in there as well, who are effectively the sisters in um, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, it's got, got flair for kind of different influence blending yeah. that Ashman seemed to love doing so much. Because, I mean, Aladdin, you look at the musical style and and the uh, setting of Aladdin and it's a very on the surface weird pairing that he makes completely work and uh, decided he wanted to bring in kind of a I don't, what's the sound for it like under the sea oh uh, Jamaican yeah like a Jamaican sound into that and just kind of infusing a little mermaid with that sort of tone like it's it was a strength of his so Hercules totally feels like the kind of movie he would have been a part of and uh you never had a friend like me. Sounds like a Cab Calloway song, and uh, One Jump sounds like vaudeville. And it, yeah, it's 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 it, it, no two songs sound the same in this in this one. Yeah, and Arabian Nights actually sounds like it's yeah, you know, it is setting the tone for this particular place. We cannot overemphasize how important the music and the songs were in these films. They kind of. They lay down everything we really need to know. Like you could almost just have the songs played back to back, and over the course of that twelve-minute period, you've had the film. That's how uh, powerful they they kind of are in conveying the the moods and the characters. Yeah, there, during this stretch, it's really hard to find any actually bad or weak song in any of these films. Oh, we geez. will get to where we are confined plenty, but. That you have some that may not be as Then Phil as Collins the reared his oh, ugly face. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, I do. Lo- there's several songs in t- uh, Tarzan that I adore, but then there's Trash in the Camp. Anyway. Yeah. Crystal clear that now 
So Jafar gets his wishes and he steals Al's song. This is a thing that happens sometimes in musicals uh, where uh, a villain will either reprise a song they did earlier but with a, or, or a song that someone else did earlier with a different bent on it. It happens in uh, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, Frollo takes the like fire... Hellfire song from the beginning and makes that his own and suddenly it becomes about his torment uh, but that's more about the fact that he makes his own hell uh, Mother Gothel changes from her passive aggressive mother knows best to being a straight out threatening conclusion and reprise to that one but in this one Jafar takes Prince Ali and turns it into a mocking song where he strips away the veneer of Aladdin and shows you who he really is and then Aladdin has to come back and show who he really is. Because all Jafar does is relegate what the world sees of Aladdin upon him. Prince Ali, yes it is he, but not as you know him. Read my lips and come to grips with reality. Yes, meet a blast from your past, whose lies were too good to last. Say hello to your precious Prince Ali! So Ali turns out to be merely an Aladdin. Just how need I go on, take it from me. His personality flaws give me adequate cures to send him packing on a one-way trip so his prospects take a terminal dip. His assets frozen, the venue chosen is the ends of the earth. So long, ex-prince Ali. And straight after this, um, Aladdin says, it's all my fault. And that kind of balances out Jasmine's uh, over-responsibility. The idea being that it's much better to say, it's all my fault, and to take too much responsibility than to say, none of this is my fault, and to take no responsibility. If you're going to go to one extreme, probably best to take too much in the case of being a hero. Because if you shirk all responsibility and you just you lay it off yourself then you're not really attempting to make amends for anything and you can't really move forwards from there all you can really do is run away or hide 
There's another bit that uh, Katzenberg was absolutely on the money on, by the way. When uh, the Cave of Wonders closes down on uh, Jafar and uh, he finds out that the lamp is gone, it cuts back to, um, as I said, Jasmine saying, it's all my fault. Because Katzenberg said we spend way too much time away from Jasmine and we kind of forget about her. But if you hadn't seen her really upset over Aladdin being dead, then when he turns up again, it's like, well, where have you been? Out eating sweetmeats, I would imagine. So to show that she's actually been really hurt by this experience, then when he starts lying to her about who he is, she's kind of trying to find out if he's really the boy from the marketplace because she wants to know if she's still responsible for the murder of a boy from the marketplace or not. So this is, again, another reason why maybe just telling the truth. I thought, shorter film? Maybe not. I think Jafar was still going to make his move. I'm here to tell you that letting someone who loves you think that you are dead when you're not is quite cruel. <laughs> it's all so magical. Yeah. It's a shame Abu had to miss this. Nah. He hates fireworks. He doesn't really like flying either. Uh that is um Oh, no. You are the boy from the market. I knew it. Why did you lie to me? Jasmine, I- I'm sorry. Did you think I was stupid? No. That I wouldn't figure it out? No, I, I mean, I-, I hoped you wouldn't. Uh, no, that- that's not what I meant. Who are you? Tell me the truth. The truth? The truth? Um, the, the truth is, I-, I I sometimes dress as a commoner um, to escape the pressures of palace life. But I, I really am a prince. Why didn't you just tell me? Well, you know, uh, um, royalty going out into the city in disguise. I mean, it sounds a little strange, don't you think? Hmm. Not that strange. Handsome prince. Sleep well, princess. If you're supporting School of Movies on Patreon, there's now a much easier way of accessing the bonus shows I publish on there. Go to the front page and the overview section and look in the top right-hand corner. Make sure you're signed in. There should be an RSS feed link. Copy the link, paste it into your podcast app where it asks you to find shows manually, and you can subscribe to the bonus Patreon-only feed, which, like I said last week, I'm calling... Alexander Shaw's Audio Club. I use Eyecatcher myself and can confirm that this works. If you're not supporting us yet but want to try this out, you can get more with each tier, and the $5 level is where a lot of the mini-reviews and behind-the-scenes stuff, as well as re-released classic episodes, are. Anybody who's at the $3 level 
basically gets to now listen to School of Movies and The Princess Thieves two days early on their phone. No fuss, no must, just update. And if you do listen to The Princess Thieves, you'll have found a lot of what we've said this episode familiar, particularly as it applies to Robin and the young Princess Gwendolyn. Here's a clip from episode four. Eight years previously, young Gwendolyn roamed the hallways of Buckingham Palace, creeping as stealthily as she could in and out of rooms. As she passed the staff, she held a finger to her lips. They must not give her location away. The only time she had permitted them to intervene was when she descended the stairs, when she was obliged to hold the hand of an adult. This, of course, caused her some consternation, but the indoor sled incident with the large serving tray had prompted this firm order from Coriolanus. It was intended, of course, for her protection, though it felt more like a punishment. She sidled into the library, extending her toes to creep across the carpeted floor, lowering her head to scan under tables and peer behind chairs. Eventually, she sank into one of these and closed her eyes, breathing in the scent of the rich leather and the hundreds of thousands of old pages that surrounded her. Then she caught it, the tiniest traces of an exotic perfume. One eye opened and she rose once more. Viola was definitely in this room. Gwendolyn didn't have a particularly well-developed sense of smell, but she had a head on her shoulders and used what clues were available. And as she had traversed the halls, the thought occurred to her that out of sight didn't necessarily preclude detection through her other faculties. What she wasn't was patient. Several minutes more of circling the library and no sign of Viola, and she found herself standing in the centre of the room. I'm going to go down to the kitchens and see if they might make me a little smackerel of something. You carry on hiding. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> I knew it. I'm over here. Where? Here. Behind the books? In a manner of speaking. Is it... Are you in a secret room? Yes. I don't know whether to be furious with you for cheating or tremendously excited. Can't you be both? Yes, it would appear I can. Anyway, it's not cheating. We said anywhere you could reach. Well, how can I reach you? You see the fireplace? Lower skirting board panel. There's a catch back there. You wouldn't see it if you looked. Or if you were cleaning. But slide your fingers into that alcove on the right. How did you find this? I was lying under that chair waiting for you. And the sunlight fell on the fireplace. I saw the catch in the shadows down there. Is this it? You found me. Oh, that's wonderful. Can I get in there too? Yes. Come on in. I had a bit of a fright when I tried to pull the case mostly shut, and it properly shut. Fortunately, the inside lever works just fine. This isn't a room. I know. It's a tunnel. We need to come back here with a lamp. That isn't like you, Viola. 
You should be scolding me and sending me back to my nice safe bedroom. Are you completely out of your mind, girl? This is a secret tunnel. Secret tunnel? Download and start listening to The Princess Thieves today. Then the final battle with Jafar is won by Wits, not Strength, and Jasmine being wily in her own way too. The bit where Genie's mouth just goes open like that is actually the fourth time that happens in a movie. It also happens to Abu once, and Genie does it twice as well. It's it's kind of a recurring thing, and it works uh, because the uh, characters have that aforementioned fluidity to them, wherein they can just drop their jaws like a Tex Avery cartoon. Um, yeah, it's a total Looney Tunes thing to do. Yeah. And interestingly enough, when Jasmine sort of stands up and puts the crown on and the little blue veil sort of falls off her, uh, Jeannie's mouth sort of falls open in a kind of, I didn't even know I could do that. But it could also be falling open in a kind of a hum and a hum and a hum. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Wild and wolfy kind of thing. When Jeannie mentions this and Aladdin goes back to it, Phenomenal cosmic powers! Itty bitty living space. That's again a fantastic macrocosm for the three wishes. You have phenomenal cosmic powers, but there's limitations. That's a more interesting story. No one can relate to no limits. Hmm. It's not really a story then. Suddenly it becomes about somebody godlike. Which is, again, why uh, Jafar's aspiring to be something that no one can relate to and nobody really has any real interest in because it's, it's too far beyond the spectrum of our understanding. At that point, when he discovers Aladdin is there, he basically turns into, like, Sorcerer Jafar the Pun Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things are ever happening for you now, boy! Get the point! <laughs> he starts getting a little more stretched the more he makes <laughs> Not a comedian, Jafar. No, that's no. stick. Stick with your day job. Though he but. is very funny. There's um, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, I, I realised um, I'm probably going to have already said this many, many months ago. Uh, one of the reasons I really like uh, Starscream in Transformers Prime, played by Steve Blum, he's doing Jafar. He's even got the long, steepling fingers, which are kind of like Mr. Burnsy as well. Um, but you know. There's a point where um, Jafar may as well say, my life is but to serve you, Lord Megatron. And uh, it'd be ironic, especially if he was saying it to Abu. But yeah, that's, that's why uh, uh, Steve Blum has been able to give an extra dimension to uh, the, the, the previously merely conniving uh, Starscream. Yeah, like Jafar doesn't get to do much because he's having to kind of be the much more straight, contained mm. character, com- like compared to Genie and Iago and all these others. But he is actually still super funny. Yeah. I think the oh yeah, the har- yeah, I think my actually the hardest I laughed this last time watching it, and it's not something that ever made me laugh before. But it's just in this moment, kind of at the end, when he wishes it has tries to make Genie make Jasmine fall in love with him, and Genie tries to say like can't do that and then he goes and like, runs over yeah go, he goes and grabs genie by the by the beard and says, don't talk back to me and then you 
the camera's focusing on them with their faces really close together, and then we hear Jasmine's Jafar, and then they both the two of them just very slowly kind of mm-hmm. turn to look in Jasmine's direction, and something about the staging of that turn is one of the funniest things I had seen in the entire movie. I don't know. Watch it again next time. And uh, and it's a very kiddie moment following this, but I suppose the, the mirror of this would be when uh, Jasmine kisses Jafar, and both Abu and Iago go, yeah in a kind of like, you know, embodying the children in the audience kind of way. Well, you know, how old is Jasmine and how yeah. old is Jafar? Yeah. Uh, it's a bit creepy. Yeah. He's like several people in between. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a manipulation thing too. So even the adults in the audience are like, like if it's between like Jasmine and Aladdin and the, and Iago and Abu are going, yeah, then that's like kitty moment with her. Like, like kissing Jafar, that's kind of like, ooh, <laughs> she's really, she's really committing to this. Yeah. There's a bit also, where Iago bumps into the. Uh, there's two like, I mean, I don't usually like physical comedy that much, but two beats with the Iago, literally. Um, three, okay, three. There's another bit where he's like sort of going through all their stuff, and he's like, you know, uh, you know, should we bring the guns, the knives, the knuckle dusters? And what about this picture? I don't know. I'm kind of making a weird face in it. It's it's really hard not to find Gilbert Gottfried absolutely goddamn hilarious, um, especially if you've seen the Aristocats, the Aristocrats. Damn it! <laughs> That's not one you want to get mixed up. A talent agent is sitting in his office. Whoa! No, but it's uh, when he um, he bashes into a pillar and then goes bumping down it like one of those birds what bumps down the pole. And then the other one uh, is when he. Uh, bumps into another pillar and he's got this kind of goofy look on his face as he sort of falls to the ground catatonic and a couple of little sultans on flying carpets fly around his head in the kind of way that tweeting birds would normally fly around his head. It's kind of one of those self-referential Roger Rabbit style moments. It's great. Hurting Iago is always funny. Yeah, same as hurting uh, LeFou from uh, Beauty and the Beast. Always fun. Hurt him as much as you can. He can take it. He's a toon. There's also another great uh, straight man moment uh, when uh, um, uh, Jafar is uh, having to put up with uh, uh, Prince Ali's shenanigans and the uh, I think the genie at this point has made himself disappear. But uh, the sultan um, says something along the lines of, oh, Jafar's excited too. And he says, ecstatic. <laughs> it's another one of those thankless <laughs> straight man tossed. As I think I've said this one before, you really start to appreciate straight men when you get older. Because as a parent or just as an adult who ever has to hang around children, whenever they behave in this kind of crazy way, you kind of look at an invisible camera as though to say, is anyone else seeing this? And you get to be the straight man at that point. I think I'm going to end, though, on uh, There's a Party in Agrabah from uh, Aladdin and the King of Thieves, the third one, which is actually where Aladdin and uh, Jasmine get married, which is just a great return for Robin Williams to this character. Do you remember who he was play- who the genie was played by in um, Return of Jafar because of a financial dispute between Robin Williams and Disney? Yeah, Dan I- Castellaneta. Yeah. Josh, what were you going to say? I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah Dan Castellaneta. Why don't you say that? Because you don't get to say nearly enough okay, in this on. podcast. Dan Castellaneta. I can't pronounce his last name. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dan Castellaneta. 
Dan Castellaneta. Dan Castellaneta. Why, this is going in the outtakes, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> there are no outtakes. This whole thing's an outtake. Yeah. Oh, You're an outtake. Um, and so, yeah, it, it ends in a sort of a lovely moment. And again, right, it ends on a very important moment, actually. It, uh, Al behaves selflessly, gives the genie his freedom. Trickle-down economics, as was demonstrated earlier with the kids and the bread. The Sultan gives Jasmine her freedom as a result of this. Technically, he's inspired by Aladdin's selflessness. And so equality is brought to the uh, uh, the, the world that has previously only been uh, ruled by blood, with girls being used as a bargaining chip. And somehow the Sultan, in one wave of his hand, undoes all of that Game of Thrones Bullshit. It's got to be the son and then blah, blah, blah. And suddenly the uh, daughter can marry whomsoever she wishes. So the, the idea is you lead by example. And I get that. So really, as I said earlier, be yourself is way too much of an oversimplification. It really comes down to observe the people around you who you believe are behaving in a way you want to act. And then like the beast inspired by Belle integrate the characteristics you admire most in others into yourself yeah that, that way you so. can think, be inspired by others yeah i think uh, the shape it takes for aladdin specific problem is having to like be honest about is is a issue of honesty and uh be and being like actually revealing to others who he really is which he's scared to do but i think the much more general yeah like takeaway of what the film means is it's what you said yeah we already know he wasn't a selfish person we already know he was going to give the genie his freedom but yeah it, it really comes down to being able to confront those things about yourself that you might not be all that comfortable with inspiration has to be a knock-on thing if all we do is take inspiration and not pass it on by our own actions then the human race diminishes inevitably <laughs> It's much more heavy than I expected we were going to end with Aladdin. I don't know. I always try to read too much. In. I like it, though. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the, the, the folks who made uh, uh, Aladdin would appreciate the the idea of uh, trickle-down freedom economics, or if you will, free economics. <laughs> anyway, right. So we're going to end on a party in Agrabah. And uh, thank you guys very, very much once again for not only turning up, but basically doing Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin back to back in one night. We started at eight. It is now just past midnight. Oi. <laughs> okay. So thank you very much to Daniel Floyd. I have still enjoyed this no matter how long it takes. <laughs> and Joshua Garrity. Thank you for having me. And we will be back next week with The Lion King. And if you weren't aware of this, I am doing reviews of movies every single day. Written reviews. It's called Movie A Day. And you can find them on schoolofmovies.com. And I've done, well, the whole of January so far. So you've got a lot to catch up on. And they're good. They're good reviews, Brent. So until next week, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. I'm actually going to give you a selection of treats at the end here. You've got the ending of Aladdin, a whole new world, party in Agrabah from Aladdin 3, and then as a special treat at the very, very end, one of the last songs that Howard Ashman wrote, performed by Howard Ashman. And it's a song from Aladdin to his mother. And it's simply called Proud of Your Boy. Jasmine, 
I'm sorry I lied to you about being a prince. I know why you did. Well, I guess this is goodbye. Oh, that stupid law. This isn't fair. I love you. Al, no problem. You still got one wish left. Just say the word and you're a prince again. But Jeannie, what about your freedom? Hey, it's only an eternity of servitude. This is love. Al, you're not gonna find another girl like her in a million years. Believe me, I know. I've looked. Jasmine, I do love you, but I gotta stop pretending to be something I'm not. I understand. Jeannie, I wish for your freedom. One bona fide prince pedigree coming up. I... What? Jeannie, you're free. I'm free. Quick, quick. Wish for something outrageous. Say, I, I want the Nile. Wish for the Nile. Try that. Uh, I wish for the Nile. No way! <laughs> oh, does that feel good? Oh, I'm free. I'm free at last. I'm hitting the road. I'm off to see the world. I'm... Genie, I'm... I'm gonna... Miss you. <laughs> Me too, Al. <laughs> no matter what anybody says, you'll always be a prince to me. That's right. You've certainly proven your worth as far as I'm concerned. It's that law that's the problem. Father? Well, am I Sultan or am I Sultan? From this day forth, the princess shall marry whoever she deems worthy. Him! I choose... I choose you, Aladdin. <laughs> call me Al. Oh, all of you, come over here. Big group hug. Group hug. Ooh. <laughs> Do you mind if I kiss the monkey? Ooh, hairball. Well, I can't do any more damage around this popsicle stand. I'm out of here! Bye, you two crazy lovebirds! Hey, Rugman, ciao! I'm history! No, I'm mythology! Nah, I don't care what I am! I'm free! A whole new world A whole new life For you There's excitement in the air People pouring in from near and far The gentlemen and Aladdin are gonna have a wedding There's a party here in Agrabah Everybody will be there So if you're a pauper or a shawl Do something with your hair You mustn't wear an outfit that's naughty 
A turban that I never link just won't do. No earrings that are tasteless or gaudy. You're gonna look gorgeous when I get through. There's a party here in Agrabah, so I'm going to paint it down. If you want to see what colors are, follow me around. Just lovely and so grown up too. There's a party here in Agrippa. Guests are filling up the room. But there's something missing. Yes, aha! Where is the groom? There's a party here in Agrippa, and the party's all for me. Just look, you guys, at where we are and how our dreams have come to be. There's a party here in Agrippa, and I can't believe it's true. Just understand me. Hey, come on, Aladdin! This mush is gonna end! There's a party here in Agrabah, and it's starting right away. Let's get you dressed, cause you're the star! Hey, come on, it's your wedding day! A new fan 
you'll see my now comes the better part Someone's gonna make good cross his stupid heart Make good and finally make you proud of your boy Tell me that I've been a louse and a loafer You won't get a fight here, no ma'am Say I'm a gold brick, a goof off, no good But that couldn't be all that I am Water flows under the bridge Let it pass, let it go There's no good reason that you should believe me Not yet, I know But someday and soon I'll make you proud of your boy Though I can't make myself taller smarter or handsome or wise I'll do my best what else can I do since I wasn't born perfect like dad or you mom I will try to try hard to make you proud of your boy